Good evening, everybody. I hope you're having a wonderful evening. My name is Christian Wagner. I'm the Militant Thomist. So today we're going to be going over a bit of an objection that I have uh, that I've been given a while for. Eh, I can speak. I promise. I've been given a lot of times this objection. Um, it's from people that actually know a bit about Thomas. So uh, it's it's a good one because Saint Thomas and largely the medieval tradition. When they talk about the nature of the of the uh, literal and the spiritual sense, the well, the twofold sense of the literal and the spiritual, they will say that because Thomas says that doctrine cannot be proved by the spiritual sense, which he does, that therefore we can't hold to the bodily assumption because then it wouldn't be proved from Scripture. And if you hold the material sufficiency, then uh, that won't work out. But before that, before I get into all the specific explanations and arguments, don't forget to subscribe and hit that bell notification so you uh, can see future episodes. And also become a patron at patreon.com slash militant to, uh, to help me out, get access to articles, to uh, yeah, additional articles and videos and PDFs and books. But uh, that's all I can think about right now that I need to let you guys know. So let's get right into it. So first, I think it's important for us to understand exactly what the literal sense is and what the spiritual sense is uh, before we get into it. Because I think once I explain what those things mean and then explain the justification for what St. Thomas says, then the answer is going to become pretty clear and it's going to follow almost immediately. So I won't really need to, uh, this is going to be pretty quick once I explain the nature of those things, because it's really a easy solution. Um, and I think with a holistic reading of St. Thomas's writings on the twofold sense of scripture that you will come down to understand exactly why, um, this argument doesn't follow, but I will do all the work for you and uh, explain it all to you. So um, when it comes to sacred scripture, uh, things can be signified by words, uh, such as, let's say, um, the example that Thomas uses in his commentary on Galatians is, let there be light. After the, the manner of words, it's just talking about the coming into being of light. That is, after words. And that would be the literal sense. Now, the literal sense is a genus with two species. So it's a category with two uh, things in that category. It can either be proper or it can be improper. So uh, the proper sense is that which, uh, I mean, the proper species of the literal sense is that which arises after, um, after the natural sense of words. So with let there be light, that's an example of the proper literal sense. And then in other examples, we know that um, when we use language, we don't only we don't always use it uh, in its plainest sense. We also sometimes use metaphor and simile. So uh, let's take the example of um, the devil um, is a roaring lion. That's an example of what we call the improper sense, because that's using simile or metaphor. So now we have the literal sense here, which is after words. So uh, going from words to signification. So let there be light. The signification is the coming into being of light. With the roaring line, that's improper. 
but it's still the same literal sense. It's the signification to the roaring lion, but after a different manner. So when it comes to the spiritual sense, where you have anagogy, um, allegory, and uh, morality, the, uh, the three species of the spiritual sense, it's something which is different. Uh, not only is... Um, so, so this is based off the literal sense, because you go here with the literal sense. You have the words right here. Literal sense is going from words... Uh, the sense of the words to the thing signified by the words. Now with the spiritual senses, you have the thing signified by the words and that thing signified by the words is also a sign of another thing. So a good example of this is um, if you think about the unbroken lamb in the old Testament. So let, let's think right here, you have the words and you apply the, it's going to be the proper literal sense because it's after the manner of just plain words. And um, that's going to get you right here to the thing, which is the unbroken lamb. Now with allegory, that unbroken lamb is itself a sign for something else. So the unbroken lamb is a sign of Christ. So you make this jump right here. Words, boom, things, boom. The thing is a sign for something else, boom. Now that would be the spiritual sense, and there's three species of this, which is um, which is going to be after the uh, after the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. So faith, that's an example, or uh, allegory, uh, properly speaking, that's an example that we just went over. So uh, with the unbroken lamb, after the manner of faith, so it's going to be talking about the new covenant. So boom, right there to uh, to matters of uh, of the gospel. So old law to new law is usually where you're going to get this when it comes to the allegorical sense, properly speaking. And now after the manner of hope, that's called the anagogical sense. So um, a good example of this, can't think of an example with the unbroken lamb, but let's go back to let there be light. So the words, let there be light, boom, literal sense, the normal signification of words. Well, the signification of words doesn't necessarily have to be the normal signification of words. So in its proper, proper sense, it's going to be going over here, boom, to, uh, to material light being formed. And then material light or light in general is in scripture often itself a sign for something else, which is future glory. So with let there be light, according to the anagogical sense, because light is used as a sign which signifies future glory, we can speak that in the sense of anagogy, that let there be light um, is referring to, in a spiritual sense, um, the entrance into future glory. Okay. So now with the uh, the moral sense, so that would be the third, which is love. So the moral sense refers to, refers to uh, things to be done. So uh, let there be light. I think I can think of an example based on let there be light. You have right here. Uh, you go from let there be light, the words, signification of the words, the forming of material light, and then boom, the uh, the material light itself is a sign of the moral life. So to, uh, I don't know, to to shun darkness, so to shun evil, and the, the entrance into the entrance of the, uh, yeah, basically it's shunning evil or darkness, because those things are uh, often used as signs in scripture of... Uh, of those moral realities, which you have. Okay. So that's kind of the way in which the, the, uh, the senses of scripture work, if that's, if that's helpful. 
Okay, so now um, from this, it becomes clear why we do not use the uh, spiritual sense in arguments. So we don't use the spiritual sense in arguments because this jump right here from words, when you have mere words to the things signified by the words, that is a jump in which we can all, we can all agree upon that. That is something which is, um, that that's something which can be used in argument because it's plain, it's before us right there in scripture, in the letters that's, that's right before us. But the second jump is not as clear. And it's by similitude, not by necessarily words. So when it comes to light, it could be um, it could be a sign of many different things. So we don't know which sign is the uh, is the sign in which God gives to those things signified by the words uh, in the literal sense. So we we cannot be we cannot be sure which one of those signs are intended or not by God. So. Um, we can't use it in argument because there isn't this uh, agreed upon uh, by the disputants of theology, which one of those signs is the correct sign. It's really, it's not an ontological argument because if you look throughout the new Testament, there is this argument, which is made from the allegorical sense. It is made, but because we do not know um, which one of these is the proper uh, sign invested by God, when it comes to the things signified by words, we don't know that. So we can't use that in arguments. But, 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 this is very important. The New Testament authors did because, as I said, they do know which signs were invested um, in those signs signified, I mean, those signs given by the uh, letters of scripture. So they do know. So that is the logic when it comes uh behind this argument from St. Thomas and then the future Thomists. But when it comes to the bodily assumption of Mary, there is no letter in scripture which is going to signify this event happening. In order to get this from scripture, we have to have um, those those uh, things signified by the letters of scripture, them themselves being signs of the bodily assumption of Mary, such as when you get in the Psalms, that the ark which you have sanctified, taking up with him, such as that. But as I said before, um, we can't use that as arguments. So how am I getting this? Well, just as the New Testament authors knew which were the proper signs. And notice these signs are pre-existing from the very writing of the Old Testament and the very institution of the unbroken lamb that was invested with a sign of the new covenant. So that's something which is pre-existing, which is something which is, uh, which is uh, known, which is revealed to the uh, New Testament authors that this is the proper signification of this sign. But when it comes to the magisterium of the church, the magisterium of the church can also know which is the proper signification of the sign through um, the working of the Holy Spirit in, for example, in the fathers, like St. Robert Bellarmine will talk, uh, will speak against chemnitzelness on the sacrifice of the mass, that when it comes to that, when it comes to, uh, I think he was using the example of Melchizedek. Then when it comes to Melchizedek, 
Melchizedek himself, well, bread and wine itself, uh, can be signs of the Eucharist. Now, how do we know that it is a sign of the Eucharist? Well, St. Robert Bellarmine argued, well, because you have the fathers of the church coming to a consensus on this. So you know that this is the, this is the sign which is truly given. So it's something which is pre-existent. And there's a gap of knowledge where we can't be sure. But the surety comes from the magisterium speaking and also from the fathers of the church. So, so that's, that's the logic why, because we have, to, we have to realize that what the New Testament authors are doing when they're drawing these allegories is they are they're showing which one is the true preexistent um, signification of the signs given by the letter in the Old Testament. They aren't inventing something. God isn't re-revealing and uh, reconstituting one of these signs. The signs are preexistent. So there are many signs throughout Scripture um, that exist. And we cannot have the surety of whether they are the true signification um, of those signs. So we cannot be sure, but we get to surety through other means, which give us that surety, which can be the fathers of the church, the, uh, the tradition coming to a consensus on a certain reading of what the sign is, the magisterium. There's different ways in which we can come to this certainty, but generally speaking, you do not use allegories because we do not have that certainty, except when we do have certainty from the New Testament authors, fathers, consensus of the church, magisterium, stuff like that. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's going to be the argument. I think it comes out pretty plain um, because most people, uh, when they when they read that from Saint Thomas talking about. Um, the reason why allegories can't be used in argument, they're going to say, oh, allegories can't be used in argument because uh, they're not something which is, uh, which is real. But it is something which is real. It's not, it's not the fact that the New Testament authors are inventing or constituting uh, new allegories. It's they're coming to know ones that already existed. So it's not this ontological gap where, oh, uh, they can't be signed because they haven't been explicitly constituted. But no, it's this epistemological gap that all of these exist, but we cannot be sure um, unless we do have surety from from another another source that we that this is the correct jump to make out of these many options for jumps to make. So, if you have any questions, I can answer them. If that was clear enough, I don't know how clear I was. I wasn't going off of a script or anything. I've just been thinking about this a lot. Okay, question. Does Aquinas make this qualification that the spiritual allegorical sense cannot establish dogma unless the church defines it as such, or does he include the magisterium in his rule? He does not make this, he does not make this distinction that I'm given, but I think it's pretty plain out of the senses of his words in um let me see, it's gonna be the fur commentary on the first book of sentences question five pro prologue article question one article five it was somewhere around there okay um yes because it's by um because it's simul similitudes are accepted. Um, 
gets it. It's out of the way of similitude. And you cannot have symbols be the form of argument because of this epistemological gap. Do you want to genocide grammatical historical scholars? Um, I've thought about it. Uh, it's a temptation. Yeah, Aquinas doesn't really treat this um, when it comes to... But I, it's so weird because what you'll get is uh, Thomas says this, and then when Thomas himself argues, he'll use the spiritual sense. And I think what's going on there is that St. Robert Bellarmine is right to not take um, this literalist approach to Thomas's words as uh, as the reform as as Chemnitz does. So I guess it's the Protestants in general. The Protestants in general will uh, will take this very rigid, very literalistic way of reading Thomas. But I think he basically does agree with Saint Robert Bellarmine when Saint Robert Bellarmine says that we can use them on arguments when we're sure about the signification by the Father's uh, repeated usage. That that is. Um, that is the Holy Spirit leading the church into the correct uh, grasping of the signification. So I, I think I, I think we ought not to have that super, super rigid reading of St. Thomas because throughout his other writings, especially his Marian stuff, he does use these sorts of arguments. Um, did Chemnitz claim that Melchizedek is not a Christophany? What is her own position on that? When it comes to um, Chemnitz, no, I say Chemnitz. That's how the Reform taught me how to say it. So, uh, yeah, I've never been taught by a Lutheran how to say it. Um, so the problem with Melchizedek uh, between the Protestants and the Romanists, <clears throat> and I'll say Romanists because you're here, Father Gad, um, the the bigger issue between the two groups is that the uh, the Reformed and the Lutherans would say that when Melchizedek is bringing out bread and wine, that that's not a sacrifice. That is just a snack that he's giving to. Basically, it's just a snack that he's giving to the um, to uh, Abraham and his his people. So that I, that's that's more of the argument because uh, I mean I, I think I, I don't think that's just, I don't think that's a good take at all. I mean I wrote a list of Turretin's arguments on this, and I've been meaning to do a little bit of a um, disputed question on this to just write it down. And I'm thinking I'm gonna I'm also in the middle of writing a disputed question uh, against some of the reformed arguments against the. The existence of the spiritual sense that's a completely different question because it's got a got a hate on the uh grammatical historical way of doing things and as you can see uh this would be interesting to you um the other paul the reason that i get so flustered about the grammatical historical way of doing things is because when they operate um there's not as clear of a of an idea that when when writing happens writing is words are significations of realities where uh the way in which grammatical historical uh, exegesis goes away goes about it is words become some weird signification of definitions which is which may sound weird at first and it doesn't really matter in in most of scripture when it when it comes to uh 
when it comes to, let's say, the historical account of, of Abraham and Melchizedek. It doesn't really matter at that at, at that point, but where it does matter is when you start to get it when you start to get into issues about the doctrine of God itself. That's where things start to matter on that. And no, I won't uh, I won't um, continue to talk about that. I think it's a clear foreshadowing of Eucharist, but that doesn't lead to a Roman understanding of the Mass. Oh, that's sad. I think it does. And no, I won't elaborate. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I don't know, that's a difficult one for me. I think when it comes to Cajetan, uh, because the two main sources I've read, well, three main sources I've read on the sacrifice of the Mass has been Thomas's, he only has one article on it, and then... Um, obviously the liturgy, but I'm not including that in my three. And then second, Cajetan and his work on the sacrifice of the Mass. And then third, Bellarmine's work on the sacrifice of the Mass. I don't think Bellarmine does the best job, honestly, and that's that might be surprising. Uh, I, I think that there's too much of a splitting of two immolations um, where Robert Bellarmine is going to say, no, there are two immolations. There's Christ's immolation on the cross or Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And there's also a second one, which is the, the sacrifice of the mass, rather than a, uh, a clear understanding that the two are uh, one immolation in two modes of existence. So I don't think there's that clear understanding in Bellarmine, which may, um, when when you read... When you read the reformed authors, that may lead to a a different understanding of Catholic doctrine on the matter. And it's because Bellarmine went away from Thomism on this matter, where Cajetan stuck very close um, to to Thomas. So I think there's there's that issue. And that issue pervades, um, at least from my experience, as I've as I've read uh, more Roman authors. And then I've also uh, gotten a little deeper into some of the issues between the Romanists and the reform. I think it pervades the debates between the Protestants and Catholics is that Protestants, they're reading Bellarmine and uh, a lot of the Jesuits, they're reading them. And then uh, Bellarmine and the Jesuits sometimes aren't the best when it comes to doing theology. They're great polemicists, but they aren't the best when it comes to doing theology uh, so things like merit, things like the sacrifice of the mass, uh, and other issues that I've run into, uh, things like the relationship between scripture and tradition, things like that, they're going to be, um, oh, oh and, uh, and the formal cause of justification. They're going to be what Newman calls the extreme Roman position, and they're a bit extreme on some of these issues. So when the Reformed are reading, the Reformed are reading those guys. They aren't reading like Banyas and stuff. Uh, and and then then you run into then you run into some issues right there, is um, is because they're reading the Jesuits and not the Dominicans. Okay. Have you ever done anything concerning Saint Justin Martyr and how the Catholic Mass ties into that? I mean, I've read uh, all of St. Justin Martyr's works, his On the Monarchy of God, uh, in his first and second apology, in his dialogue with Trifo. And I mean, I've read the uh, the relevant section. Obviously, I've read the relevant sections on the, the Mass. 
but I mean, with, with the earliest fathers, I know, I know that it's, it's a very big importance when it comes to reading the earliest fathers. Um, and because that's where we can get valid apostolic traditions. But I think when it comes to theological matters that it can be a bit overhyped because St. Justin Martyr, he's basically just stating, uh, facts. He's not really, um, getting into the theology behind it. So it could be a bit difficult to build a framework on St. Justin Martyr. And it takes a bit of speculation that I'm not, that I'm not a historical theologian by any means. Um, his, history is just not, uh, somebody, somebody made a little bit of a meme about, uh, Catholic YouTubers and, uh, <laughs> um, it, earlier today and I shared it. Um, it was kind of funny. It was self-deprecating humor. But one of them was uh, they like to read history, then throw in random historical facts that have nothing to do with theology, and then not actually read theology. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of the opposite way. I don't I don't really care for historical theology. I mean, I've read uh, Sozomen, Eusebius, Socrates. I've, I've read um, the early church historians and have gotten a lot from them. But uh, I, I, history is just a whole can of worms that I'm not. Uh, that I'm not good at. So I'm not going to pretend I'm good at and try to do it. I'm thinking of in the future, this is actually the first time we've talked about this, but in the future, I think I want to do a, a series on how cool Constantine is and kind of go off of Eusebius's life of Constantine. That seems like something very non-controversial. I just don't like to get into the controversies over history. That's not something I'm interested in, except on historical theory when it comes to Newman. That is something which I'm interested in. I kind of understand what you're saying, but the base question, what a word even means is unavoidable. I can and have seen abuse of the method, but it's actual principle or essential. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think I think a good, um, a good illustration of this is an origins commentary on John. When you have origins commentary on John and his reading of John 1, his reading of in the beginning was the word takes up the whole first book. <laughs> and the reason behind this is because he is considering um, the word word. That's most of his consideration. And he doesn't, what a modern exegete would do following the grammatical historical method would be like, okay, let's look at all the ways in which word can be defined in the ancient world. Okay, let's debate. Okay, now we know the, the specific definition of, of what word means. And while, because we don't speak uh, Greek, at least, well, we don't natively speak Greek, at least first century Greek, um, like origin would have been much more familiar with. We do have to do a bit of that work when it comes to uh, the uh, proper consideration of what the word is signifying, but most are going to stop there. You'll basically have a bunch of, you, if you pick up a modern commentary of a bunch of grammatical argument and blah, 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 blah. Okay, now we're here to the definition of the word. Okay, we can stop. But that's not the way in which uh, the fathers of the medievals would have exegeted the text. And I think that's very clear when you when you read all their commentaries. The way that they would exegete a text is, Origins a perfect example of this in his commentary on John Book 1, as I said, is they would, okay, they would go, okay, here is um, word. Now let's look at the concept of a divine name. Let's look at uh, the nature of of the logos let's look at let's look at all of these theological considerations therefore you can kind of call it a a dogmatic type of exegesis is um considering the the nature of divine things 
and then using that to give us a true sense of the words rather than just a mere definition of the words. So I, I hope that makes sense. I mean, I'm not explaining it the, the best. And I've started only thinking about this in the last few months. So it's not something that I've went insane about. So uh, I think it could require some more clarification. But I hope you I hope you understand because it doesn't like I said, it doesn't really matter in like 90 percent of scripture, because when you're reading, um, for example, the story of. Trying to think of a good example, when when you're thinking of a historical account like the Battle of Jericho, that's not going to really matter I'm because because we're, we're dealing with a level of natural things. So we're dealing with a level of natural things. There's not much of a difference. But when we do get to those texts, such as John 1.1, we're getting those texts about God's love. We're getting the texts about um, God's anger and, and stuff like that. Those things get to be very important when we're talking about the, the nature of divine naming that comes into uh, the uh, that comes into um, the debate on, on exegesis. When it comes into... Uh, the, the nature of analogy that we need to have because of the very nature of divine things versus human things. And this is, this is also comes into our brief debate about metaphysics. That's why I think metaphysics is so important. It isn't because of things like we were talking about, like icons. It's most important when it comes to divine things being spoken of in scripture, where there is this dissimilitude between nature and supernature. And this dissimilitude, if you're just sticking on this level of nature, which is uh, basically the plain definition of words, you're not going to get past this dissimilitude by thinking about the nature of things. So when it comes to uh, speaking about nature versus supernature, this is when we run into some issues, um, not necessarily on 90% of scripture, which is um, a lot of times uh, historical narrative. So that's what I meant. Yes, I've noticed Bellamy goes beyond Aquinas. Yeah, on a lot of points. Um, I mean, Bellarmine's only a Thomist in the broadest sense, and you didn't hear me say that. <laughs> okay, I'm seeing... Oh, yeah. The other Paul is just commenting on his previous comment. Thoughts on De Lubac and the Nouvelle Theologie in light of your words on Bellarmine. <laughs> I don't know if you're reading my mind or something, Barely Protestant. I've been thinking about this for the last few weeks in particular. <laughs> um, I really don't like the Nouvelle Theologie. Um, I take Lagrange and his position on the Nouvelle Theologie is that it's basically the gateway to modernism. And again, you didn't hear me say that. Um, uh, have, have you read um, Lagrange's article, Where the New Theology is Going? I think the biggest issue with the Nouvelle Theology is going to be where the new theology is leading us. That's what it's called. The biggest issue is going to be when it comes to theology, I mean, uh, philosophy. That's where it's the hugest issue you're going to get. Nouvelle Theology. That and uh, you also have the this, the issues with uh, pure nature. Exactly, this man is a dogmatician, not a historian. I, that's why I thought that was such a fitting remark by Doctor White. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my, the other Paul is spazzing out in my in my live chat. Missed a step. What? What are you? What are you going? There's linguistic debates in the Jericho guy. Okay, you know what I meant. I was look. <laughs> I haven't been. I haven't been thinking about this for like decades. I've been thinking about this for months. So I haven't. I haven't. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, I. So I don't actually reject the grammatical historical method. I just find the ones who mention the fact that they use it to be an error often. It's usually the method they consciously use. Yeah, when it comes to, again, when it comes to the grammatical historical method, first place uh, of denial is uh, is the fact that often with some of these guys, you're going to get a denial of typology. I know it's not the same way with you, the other Paul, or a lot of, of the more classical presentations of the grammatical historical method. I understand that. But in the second place, it's when it comes to divine things. Because the definition of... So by the very um, nature of the grammatical historical method, so the fact that you're going to be defining the words in context, in usage, and stuff like that. So I, I know that's a very un, unsatisfying description of grammatical historical method, but that's that's just plainly, plainly what I mean. So when you when scripture talks about divine things, it's going to be using analogous language, but that can't be accounted for in the grammatical historical method. The usage of the usage of analogous language. Because when it comes to analogous language, that's not on the level of grammar. That's on the level of things, things, broadly speaking. So th th that's, that's what I, what I, what I mean. Why did barely Protestants say, oh, oh, that I, that I don't like the, the Nouvelle Theology. Taylor Marshall has entered the chat. <laughs> You're not on the team. You're not on the team if you don't watch Militant Thomas streams. That reminds me, I should probably pray a rosary today. Just to just for everybody, I am calling you all first to become a patron at patreon.com slash militant thomas. And second, everybody to pray a rosary for the conversion of the other Paul to the Catholic faith. You still need to come on my show to to uh, to read the credo of the people of God, the other Paul. Actually, I'll make you read like the credo of um, the Council of Trent. <laughs> Barely Protestant. He's on the he's on the uh, Anglican team, reading evening song. Okay, so I'll give you guys like a minute. See if you have any other questions. Want to do it now? Uh, I need to... I'm a bit sick. Okay, good. <laughs> I have to... Uh, I've, I, think the, I think the kid's in bed right now. So Lexi and I have to do our catechism readings for uh, getting received into the church. Dragon Ball Z. I've never... Never uh, watched Dragon Ball Z, but I guarantee barely Protestant as. 
Guaranteed. Goku? Who's Goku? Goku. Yeah, but I'm thinking maybe... Uh, no, no. I need like at least another year before I even start talking about the Nouvelle Theologie. <sighs> they just trigger me so much. Because you're reading like... Read, read Humani Generous. I just want you to read Humani Generous for me. Actually, no, I won't. I won't tell you guys. Actually, read Humani Generous. Definitely read Humani Generous. And that's all you need to know when you're thinking about whether to follow a theologian or not. I will perform a linguistic analysis of your stream. Dang it, the other Paul. That's not how language works, man. I'm mad. Big mad. Yeah, when it comes to Nouvelle Theologie, they're, they're a big no-no in my book. I'm still... Boom. I wish more Protestants like myself accepted the assumption it makes logical sense. The son want, who wanted his mother taken care of wouldn't just forget about her once he got to heaven. Boom. Roasted. Militant Thomas denies Vatican. I do not deny Vatican II. I do not. It's just... Seems kind of odd to me that Congar and De Lubac were both made cardinals in the 90s, were both very active in a certain ecumenical council in the mid 20th century. It's kind of odd considering, well, they were both made cardinals in the 80s, I think. I don't, yeah, the 80s. It's kind of odd considering in the 40s, both of them were basic, well, De Lubac was basically name dropped in Humani Generis for his book Surnatural about the beatific vision. And Yves Congar was, was uh, suspended from preaching or teaching for two years because of his theology. Seems kind of odd that both of them had so much influence. But the council is protected by the Holy Spirit. So that's what I'm going to say. That's what I'm going to say. But the making of cardinals is not protected by the Holy Spirit, nor are the positions of each one of the people at the council. So I think we need to make the sharp distinction that I don't think Taylor Marshall makes when it comes to um, the protection by the Holy Spirit of the council versus um, some of the trends afterwards that might have happened in some of the theologians, namely uh, two particular theologians, both with, uh, with weird European names. I have icon. No. Okay. Oh, barely Protestant holds to the assumption. I just denied his dogma. That makes sense in your, your framework because you have uh, no reason to um, accept the signification I put forward as being um, the infallibly true signification. Oh, gosh. Uh, that's not how language works. Now, given other contemporary contemporaneous uses of work in 21st century English literature, Militant Thomas intends an idiomatic understanding of the word in reference to function. Do you think more Protestants will eventually accept our bl Blessed Mother's assumption? Probably not. 
I think it's going in the opposite direction. Um, I would see, I, I do see more Protestants accepting the perpetual virginity of Our Lady, thanks be to God, uh, because of some of the uh, ressourcement going on in the Protestant world of uh, Reformed Orthodox authors. So I, I do see that um, coming more to fore, but with the assumption um I can think of Bullinger, I think, accepting the assumption. But that was very early um, in his career, in like the early 20, 1520s. So but that's the only one I can think who accepted the assumption. All the other ones kind of raged against it. So uh, I don't see that coming to coming to four. Bertuzzi will with time. Oh my, Bertuzzi! Uh, if if he converts, that's gonna be so great. But I can just imagine um, type of videos that are gonna be made when he converts. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's uh, when when you have people who are making posts like that, you already know they're they're half gone. Like I, I, it's not a question of whether Bertuzzi is going to convert. It's a question of when he's going to convert. And I mean, he's got a lot of riding on it. I mean, he's got a lot of money going going in his pocket from from uh, patrons and such that he'll lose when when he converts. Is people aren't going. So I think this might be a way that he's already converted in his heart, but there's certain um, impediments to uh, going through with it. Where do you think evangelical Protestantism will be in 30 to 50 years? Um, it, I think what, at least in, at least in my reading of what, of history, I think what we've seen through the last, gosh, three or four, uh, maybe ever since the early to mid 19th century, what you've seen in American evangelical Protestantism is you've seen a sort of deformation that has happened um, away from the historic faith, away from biblical orthodoxy. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, these, uh, you have these charismatic preachers. I'm talking about like, oh, you have neo-Pelagians who become some of the most popular figures such as Charles Finney in, in American Protestantism. But then you also have certain groups within there who have, who have held orthodoxy. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see this continued demise of, of those groups who are unorthodox and who do not have much foundation besides the pastor told me to, or X is popular or such. Like for example, uh, John MacArthur, when he dies, his church is basically done. Honestly, um, because there isn't that strong of a foundation uh, within within a larger confessional tradition. But those those bodies which do have that, like I totally foresee like the REC. Um, what else? The REC, the OPC, all of those uh, very um, uh, strict bodies, they're going to be able to weather um, 
anything that's coming forward. So I see a kind of twofold movement of a continued deformation of uh, most of uh, pop evangelicalism into either obscurity where it just doesn't exist anymore, or it's going to go so far from Christianity that you're not even going to be able to recognize it if that's even possible. So that's, that's kind of what I see that's going to be going on in the future. Um, he's actively stated that he's working through objections. He has clear statement of desire to convert. Oh yeah. I wonder, wonder who he's talking to though. Because you all, you, you always know that when somebody's in a process of conversion, they're talking to somebody. So I wonder who he's, he's, he's talking to, because I mean, I, I foresee he's going to kind of become like sort of vanilla, uh, Catholic answers, sort of Catholic, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I don't, I don't foresee him becoming like a base Thomist or something like that. <laughs> like I, I don't, I don't foresee that. I just kind of foresee him being a lot more mainline, you know. Anytime an evangelical constantly misrepresents historic Protestantism, even after being corrected, there's a sure sign he'll 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 become a Romanist. Um, yeah, yeah, I I don't know. I've seen um, what is his? I can't remember his name, but you've had a few people, uh, at least that I can think of. I can think of about a half a dozen to a dozen names of people within the within the larger Muller uh, movement of resourcement of uh, of classical scholastic reform theology who have become Romanist, quote unquote. Um, so I, I mean, but yeah, with most, it's like a caricature of of historic Protestantism in, in one hand. And then in the other hand, it's like a uh, a long playlist of Catholic answers. Um, that's that's what you'll that's what you'll see. His biggest objection to Catholicism is divine simplicity, bro. What? <laughs> Never mind. You guys can keep them. <laughs> Who? What? Bro, what? Like the the papacy? That's a pretty difficult one to hold to. Like some of the Maria dogmas are a bit difficult. Like th these are honestly like very difficult things like to, to work through. They're very difficult. It took me a long time, but like divine simplicity, that should take like a 15 minute conversation. Like, oh my gosh. That is, that is just, that is just silly. That is just very silly. Is the Roman communion strict? No, but I think um, I, I hope in the future, in the, uh, the winning of Holy Mother Church for different reasons, just my comments on, uh, on evangelical Protestantism, they're just contingent on the fact of, uh, of the structure of, uh, of Protestantism, because usually the reason, because let's be honest, the reason somebody stays in a certain Protestant tradition has to do with, um, a certain, judgment of the truth of individual doctrines and the reason they leave it is because they don't judge those to be true 
So that's a very important thing when it comes to converting, for example, from Anglicanism to Lutheranism or from uh, uh, being a Baptist to a Presbyterian. That's something which is very important. So uh, that continuing of, of holding a strict confessional tradition is going to be very important to being able to propagate, explain, and defend your positions on the matter. Uh, but when it comes to the Roman communion, people usually have different um, reasons for converting. Is it, it less has to do with individual doctrines and more um, an entire structure of ecclesiastical authority, if that makes any sense to, to what I'm trying to say. I don't know if that makes any sense or if that was just gibberish. I can't believe his biggest, I still am flabbergasted by his rejection of divine simplicity. Why? Wow, that's a huge thing. Bishops were in the early church, therefore papism is true, based. My favorite is when I hear people, you know, I don't mean to make to make too much fun. This is a good nature. This is in good faith. I'm just uh, kind of poking at people. But I hear people saying like, I read the epistles of Ignatius and saw that the early church had bishops and believed in the Eucharist. Therefore, I had to become Catholic. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that would you would have to leave most of evangelical Protestantism, but that does not necessarily lead to um, Catholicism. Pius XII was a very good pope, maybe the last one. Oh yeah, I love Pius XII, especially because he he was he st he stuck real close to uh, Father Garrigou Lagrange. So, so with those two, because I mean, it's rumored that Lagrange wrote Humani, uh, Humani genius, generous. I don't know. I said genus, Humani generous. Um, Joe Hesmeyer, who's that? I have no idea who that is. Honestly, is that a bad thing? I'm gonna I'm gonna Google this guy, Joe Heschmeyer. He's an all oh, he's Catholic answers. Oh, uh, the early church was the Catholic Church. Oh, I get why you guys don't like it. Um, you have no idea who that is. At least. At least this is gonna prove to you. This is gonna. This is gonna prove to you guys that uh, I didn't listen to Catholic answers. In my conversion. He says, "Bishops and Eucharist and Ignatius, therefore Catholicism." Was that was he on? Uh, was he on Reason and Theology? I think I remember there was an episode which I saw was like the early church was the Catholic Church, and I'm like, oh, I'll need to listen to this. And that basically was the whole argument. And I'm like, well, that's not it's not necessarily a good argument. Um, Milton Thomas, do you think the modern Eastern Orthodox apologists are boarding semi-Pelagian because their emphasis on free will? Um, I think we have to very uh, strictly define semi-Pelagianism. Um, because I, the, the whole question is going to come down to uh, the relationship between grace and will, not necessarily the involvement of free will uh, with the semi-Pelagian debate. Because the, the semi-Pelagian and Pelagians are going to say that 
nature precedes grace. There's a certain movement of the will, which is, um, which is separated from grace. So modern Eastern Orthodox apologists, I just don't know enough about them. Honestly, Eastern Orthodox stuff, except the filioque is not something which, I mean, specifically dogmatic uh, arguments over the filioque, not historical arguments. So that's really the only area in which I would claim any sort of uh, facility when it comes to Eastern Orthodox. How do you pronounce his name? Heskchumayr? Heskchumayr? I have no idea. Was a very true believer in bad times of war. Human humanity has lost its mind. Was not easy for him, and he did a nice job. Oh yeah, Pius the Twelfth. Although, although I was a little bit uh, when I was reading, I've been reading into like twentieth-century Catholic history a bit. I was a bit worried when I was reading the chapter, and I saw the background of Pius the Twelfth. But he did an amazing job. I was, he definitely uh, did great. He was on Trent Horn and most recently Pines of Aquinas. His book, Pope Peter, is especially bad. I don't know. I'll have to, I'll, I can't judge the man. I mean, I just saw the one interview that he had and I wasn't too impressed. But uh, who knows? Maybe his writing is better. I'm just not interested. Like, really? Um, I'm just not interested. Um, uh, like 99% of the debates everybody's interested in. I'm just not interested. Like if I, if I did all of these like Protestant trolled videos, I probably would be able to get a lot of, a lot of subscribers and viewers and stuff like that and be able to rank up the numbers trolling Protestants. But that's just not something like I really care about. Honestly, I'd rather bring somebody on to debate um the superiority simplicator of the active versus the passive intellect, like something like that or, uh, or hermeneutical issues or something like that. I, I'm, I'm not really interested in all of these like super annoying Protestant versus Catholic debates. I've never been um, at all. And I mean, touching dogmatic issues. Sometimes it does involve um, apologetics, like the filioque way. I'm interested in it dogmatically and some people disagree with it. So that comes into the realm of polemics, but I think doing polemics for the sake of polemics is always going to put you into trouble. Reminder, the Eastern Orthodox accepted limbo in the Synod of Jerusalem. Limbo is, makes so much sense. Oh, I have to go. We have to read our catechism eventually. Hesk, Hesh, Hesh, Heskmeyer, Heshmeyer. Barely Protestant. You're obsessed with Christians since you left your church. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. Barely Protestant has been obsessed with me a lot longer than that. Oh, a video about limbo. I'd love to do a video about limbo. Limbo is a very interesting uh Wagner going nuance mode, anti-grifter power. This is why we support you. Thank you, King. I saw you first time on Settlers Lament a few days ago, loving your channel. Oh, yeah, I never answered your question uh, yesterday. What was your question? Um, about whether I had any other systems of thought outside of Catholicism that I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, I remember you asking that question. I never answered it. Uh, 
I think I scrolled past and I remembered afterwards. I didn't answer it. Um, I think, I mean, I guess Platonism counts, <laughs> Neoplatonism, um, Aristotelianism. I don't, I don't think if those, I don't think those count. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I can't really think of any other, I, I mean, Protestantism, I guess, uh, when it comes to reform scholastic thought and especially the relationship between doctrine and piety has been very helpful for my understanding of it. But I don't know if that's the kind of answer you're looking for. Um, because really the only thing I can think of is, uh, is philosophically with the, uh, the, the Greek fathers of philosophy. That's the only thing I can think of. Okay. I need to, I need to go everybody. I will see you later Kings. Remember? Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's after Vespers. So it's Sunday already. So do not fast anymore. It is Sunday Kings. Make sure you feast, make sure you enjoy, because every Sunday is a feast day. And then back on Monday, do penance, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Glory.